I always tell my students, go to the, the deepest, darkest places inside of you uh, and tell stories from that place. I don't think that writers in particularly, and I'm sure the same could be said for any artist, we don't do great work unless we are doing our work terrified. And if you are willing to sit down and write terrified, if you're scared of what you're writing, there's a good chance that you're tapping into some sort of transcendent nature uh, of storytelling. If you, if your photography, if you're sculpting, if you're painting or, or whatever it is you're doing, if you are daring and bold enough in those things to ask questions that you're terrified to ask, you're saying something that the world needs to hear, in my, in my personal opinion. Are you writing something or working on a project right now that terrifies you? I am. Can I be honest? Story 2017 terrifies me. Not because I have any doubt that it's going to be amazing, but because the journey itself is terrifying. A lot of very impressive and highly creative storytellers came to Story 2016 and left raving about it. Some of them even calling it a, quote, transformational experience. One person even said on our survey, I've been going to multiple conferences every year for 30 years, and last year, Story was hands down the best conference I've ever attended. And when you hear that kind of feedback, it's encouraging, obviously, but it also creates this terrifying thought of wondering, can we pull this off again? And not just pull off, but top it, to do it even better than we did before. I love the idea of doing work that terrifies you because that's exactly where I am and where my team is as we attempt to lead the story community. And though terrifying, it is rewarding because there is something about the work we're doing and the work that you, as a part of that community, is doing that is transcendent. And that transcendence is one of the things that makes story so special. That's why I'm confident that Story 2017 will be our best year yet. But what is transcendent storytelling? And how can we do more of it in our work? We talk about that and a lot more practical how-to in this week's wisdom-rich conversation on the Story Podcast. There are things meant for you that are currently beyond your imagination. The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway. To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. This week in Los Angeles, I sat down with Jeremy Casper. Uh, I am a lover of character and uh, a believer in the power of story to change the world. <laughs> Jeremy Casper is a writer, director, producer, as well as a film instructor and guest lecturer. He currently teaches narrative storytelling at his alma mater, the Los Angeles Film Studies Center, and has led screenwriting and directing seminars all over the world in partnership with the Global Short Film Network and the Visual Story Network. His first feature film, Vacant House, has won numerous festival awards for screenwriting, directing, acting, and best picture. 
Jeremy has co-authored two books on writing for short films, The Inside Out Story, Discovering Structure for Short Films, and Master of the Cinematic Universe, The Secret Code to Writing in the New World of Media. Jeremy's also working on a third book that will delve into the deep psychology and spirituality of transcendent cinematic characters, which just so happens to be one of the places our conversation goes first. You know, right after we talk about what we always find ourselves talking about on the story podcast, the power of stories. I love the way that you describe what you do because I'm often guilty of saying sometimes too often, um, we're changing the world as story, everything that we do at story, like we're doing this because we want to change the world. Uh, and it's true, but I think sometimes we say it so often it can become cliche, right? Like, oh, our stories are changing the world. Hey, don't forget stories are powerful. They change the world. Do you really believe they are actually literally changing the world? I absolutely do. And I think you're right. I think the, the, the word story and the way we talk about story, we use it so flippantly in society now. We just throw it around. But I really do believe that story at its its basic, most fundamental core existence really is a roadmap of the human psyche. It's uh, it's a, a gateway to human spirituality and a deeper understanding of life and existence. And I think that uh, that writers and storytellers who are bold enough and brave enough um, to go into sort of the deeper parts of themselves, uh, what they find are stories all over the place. And uh, these, these uh, learning the methods of storytelling, I think any artist in order to, to effectively communicate in whatever medium they're communicating in, they need to learn how their, uh, how their medium works. They need to learn the, the pros and the cons, the strengths, the weaknesses, the limitations. And uh, once uh, an author is able to get their heads around the power of story and what it actually can do, and that is to tap into deep human psychology and spirituality, um, not only does it open up uh, a gateway to all sorts of possibilities of affecting the hearts and the minds of people, um, it also calls into question all sorts of um, aspects of responsibility. You know, if I have this kind of power as a storyteller, I can't just uh, be running through the hallways wielding this, uh, you know, this dangerous sword. I have to treat it with respect. And I think that uh, because we live in such a story-saturated environment, sometimes we take story for granted. Uh, we see stories in commercials on television, or we see bad stories in cinema. And I think that uh, in some ways we have sort of lost our attachment to the power of story and what story has historically done all throughout uh, all throughout ancient history. It was literally used to disseminate information to up-and-coming generations, and um, and it was and it, they did it that way because it worked. It really worked. So. Stories are losing their power because of oversaturation, because we're just exposed to so many of them. You feel like that's the primary reason, or are there other things that come to mind? I think that that's one of the reasons, and um, you know, I think it was Flannery O'Connor who said that uh, you know everybody knows what a story is until they sit down to write one. Um, we know a good story when we hear one, um, but we we see it all over the place. But I also think that that story. We we don't define a certain thing. We we call certain things in society stories that really aren't. Um, so when, when we ask people to tell us a story, sometimes they'll just give us some anecdotal experience that they went through that in that particular day. Uh, in my opinion, that anecdotal experience of just oh, getting a flat tire on the way to work doesn't necessarily actually meet the definition of story, but we call it a story. Uh, when we just sell a product on TV, we call it a story. Um, but true story is about characters overcoming internal obstacles while they're trying to uh, face some opposition in the very real um, imminent world around them. 
Um, so I think that part of the reason stories have become weak is because we just call so many things story that really aren't. So Interesting. And you know, one of our speakers last year was Casey Neistat mm-hmm. at Story 2016, yeah. who's yeah. primarily a YouTuber. Yeah. Um, but used to be, you know, a lot of people will say like, well, so he's not a filmmaker. It's like he's just a YouTube <laughs> guy. And I'm like, no, he was, you know, had a show on HBO and was, won some awards and then went to YouTube. I, I think mostly because he was frustrated with the lack of creative control, probably. Yeah. Uh, but in his talk, he opened up with this idea of when, you know, when he thinks of the word story, he thinks of, he, what were the things he mentioned, like Bob Bob Dylan lyrics that had moved him and stories mm-hmm. that his grandfather told him that you know emotionally changed him, and then he goes, "Not some Dove commercial." Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is that what you mean? Absolutely. I think it was um, documentarian uh, Ken Burns who said that a good story is one plus one equals three, and I love that definition. Uh, that's really at the end of the day, we can talk about story structure and, and the nuts and bolts of telling a story till we're blue in the face. But at the end of the day, if if I have experienced some payoff at the end of of a story that seems to be greater than the sum of its parts, um, I would call that a story. Uh, so I think that you know, if if we wanted to whittle story down to its most basic, basic fundamental definition. I just would say it's a, it's some sort of um, setup that has a payoff that's, that's greater than what we started with. So interesting. So there's a lot of marketing people listening right now who are going, (laughs) well, yeah, that's why I use stories because they're that powerful because they effectively sell things. Yeah. Um, What would you, I almost asked like, what, what kind of pushback would you give them? Uh, And maybe that's the best question, but like, what would you encourage someone to think about as they write stories that are being utilized to sell things. Because obviously selling things isn't bad, right? It's not, yeah. not like some of us, I'm, I have to sell things. I have to sell tickets to a conference. It funds this amazing creative community, yeah. keeps them inspired. How do we utilize stories um, without hijacking the magic yeah. that makes stories so powerful. Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, I think that, you know, for any artist or any creative media, at some point, you know, you're going to have to ask some ethical questions just about yourself. And at the end of the day, can I say definitively, using story to sell, sell a product is a bad thing? No, I'm not I'm not going to, to say that. Uh, the reason we use stories to sell products is because it works, just like you said. <laughs> and uh, and, and actual, actuality, some of the greatest uh, commercials that I've seen on television have been story-driven. Uh, they've been stories or, or, or commercials that have actually really moved me. And then all of a sudden at the end of the commercial, I'm like, oh, oh yeah, there's a product attached to this. <laughs> and there is a little part of me that feels a little duped sometimes when that happens, but you know, it's it's a powerful moving thing. And and I think as long as the stories we're telling, you know, are, are we telling stories that are relevant to society and the things that are going on, you know, in the world around us? Um, was it the Amazon Prime video that came out recently with uh, uh, the, the the Muslim and, and the Christian who, you know, end up buying knee pads for each other, you know, so they could both pray in their own way. And it was this really beautiful story that was selling a product, but you know what, I didn't care. <laughs> it, yeah. it moved my heart. So. I, I think that a lot of it just comes down to, you know, just your own personal ethical responsibility that you think you need to have, which I think is a very important question to ask because story is very powerful because story does, it, 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 it jumps over our intellect and goes straight to our soul and our hearts and our spirits. And so if you're wielding that kind of power, you just need to do so thoughtfully. So otherwise you start treading into the realm of propaganda and you don't want to do any of that. So. 
That is why we so often talk about the power of stories, not just because we want to use them to establish new narratives in our world, but because we also want to call all storytellers to action to remember the power that they have. I often say that because stories are so powerful at shaping culture, that means that great storytelling is like a superpower. And with that great power comes great responsibility. Some storytellers often think, but this isn't the story about someone's life, especially my life. But because stories shape the way people think about themselves and how they see themselves as a character in the story of all humanity, we all have stories to tell. And we have to tell those stories responsibly. There are powerful attributes of narrative that can hijack the human brain. Literally, that's kind of how it works. Stories are that powerful and they can have an impact on the human heart. We aren't just telling stories. We as storytellers are also living out our own stories. And that's where our conversation goes next. In general, it sounds like you believe that everyone is also living a story, obviously. Um, But as simple as that sounds, there's some deep meaning behind that idea. Yeah. Maybe tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I think that uh, from a writer's perspective, the best stories always come from real life. Um, but uh, one of the problems of translating real life into you know, a film or a book is there's so many things you have to edit out. And the reason why you have to edit out is because our lives are so deeply nuanced and so deeply complex. And so that's why you know, when I am sitting uh, in uh, traffic and someone cuts me off, and I start yelling and screaming and I get all mad and I have this huge overreaction. Well, the reason I'm having an overreaction that I'm reacting in a way that isn't normal is because there's something else going on inside of me. There's something that's broken and that triggered something. And so even in those little minutia, those little microcosmic events that happen throughout our day, um, we are constantly um, revealing the stories that are going on inside of us. And uh, it's, it's conflict, it's, it's problems. When we face those things in life, which we face sometimes minute by minute, uh, those problems reveal what's happening inside of us, um, how we respond to those with, uh, with our internal moral arguments. Um, all that starts to come out in the way we, we deal with conflict in our lives. Um, so I don't think it's an overstatement at all to say that we are constantly, every single moment of our lives, living out story. So you keep using the word soul. Uh-huh. Uh, there are some people, we, we do get into spirituality every now and then here on the story podcast. Yeah. I'm just really curious what you would say to this. Um, if, if stories come from our souls mm-hmm. and are designed to resonate with our souls, or at least the great ones do, mm-hmm. for someone who doesn't believe that human beings have a soul, mm-hmm. does that mean they are incapable of being a great storyteller? Uh, absolutely not. And um, I could talk for a long time just about the soul. Um, you just surprised me. I thought you were going to say no. <laughs> no, I, th- I think that they can. And, and here's the reason why is I personally believe that whether you have someone of the most devout faith or you have someone who doesn't believe in any sort of spirituality or a God at all, I don't think that that person who doesn't necessarily cognitively believe in the spiritual, that they do not have um, um, a, a depth at what I would call a soul that they can bring to the very relevant human conversation that we're having as we as we tell stories in society. Um, I, I personally believe that oftentimes atheists and people of the most devout faith are oftentimes saying the same thing and they don't even necessarily hmm. realize they're saying the That's same interesting, thing. interesting, yeah. So I think this starts to get into where language starts to become such a huge barrier. You know, I mean, you know, here in the English language, we have one word for love pretty much. 
And in ancient Sanskrit, they have almost 900 different words for all the various complex nuances of this thing that we call love. And um, how limited are we in our English-speaking language when we set out to describe this, this vast, deeply complex thing that's happening with inside of us? The same word that I use to describe my relationship with you know, a puppy is the same word that I use to um, describe my relationship with the divine. I mean, it's very limiting, you know? Yeah. And so uh, just to say that um, I can't talk about love because I just have that one word to me is the same thing as saying, well, an atheist or someone who doesn't believe in the spiritual can't talk about things that are deeply profound and um, of a soul nature just because they are not, in essence, using the same language that I'm using. So, Interesting. Yeah. I love that. That's not at all what I thought you were going to say, which I love. So if, if, if great stories are the ones that resonate with someone's soul, does that mean that part of the path to becoming a great storyteller is to understand the human soul? or whatever it is that you believe that to be? Yeah, I, I would say yes at, at the end of the day. I think that some of the greatest stories actually come from, and, and we can get into the nuanced definitions of the aspects of what make us human if, if we want to, uh, but if we, if we look at um, you know, historically body, mind, soul, and spirit, for example, uh, some of the greatest stories um, actually come from uh, that internal conflict that happens between mind and soul. So what I've been taught, um, conflicting with what I feel. Um, the, this is where some of the most powerful transcendent stories can come from. Now, I would say that the, the, the full complexity of, of the human experience is we work all these conflictions and all this war out within our spirits. And so sometimes there does get to be a little confusion when we start talking about spirit and soul and, and it, it starts to get a little bit messy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and no one really has a definitive definition about what, what delineates you know, the soul <laughs> from the spirit or the sure. mind. Um, but um, I don't think, my personal opinion, when we talk about soul, that we are necessarily always talking about things that have to do with, um, you know, uh, the, the cosmic universe or, or our experiences with the divine. Um, I think that the soul, in, in, in essence, really is the deepest part of who we are as human beings. Um, so whether that, that's, it's, the, um, it's the, 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 the core of who we are. And I think that where we experience the soul oftentimes is, is in our emotions and our feelings and the anecdotal experiences that we've processed through the mind and we've allowed to permeate our souls. And that really starts to become the defining essence of who we are. And at the end of the day, what I am very interested in as I'm walking through life is sure, I'm, I'm interested, Harris, in what your mind thinks. Like, that's very interesting to me. Um, but really, uh, at, at the core of who I am, I want to know what your soul thinks. Um, you can, anything that your mind communicates to me, that's stuff I can read in a book. You can put that in bullet points. You know, you can outline that. Uh, but in order for me to engage your soul, we have to have a relationship. I have to get to know you and understand who you are. And the deeper complexities of who you are, the nuances, um, the, the, the aspects of, of who you are that transcend just these limited definitions that you come up with in your mind of how you're supposed to live life and what you're supposed to do. Uh, so much of that is, is in your soul. Um, and so I do think that, that regardless of who you are, um, and again, I don't think it has to do necessarily with God uh, per se, um, but I think that the deepest complexities and nuances of who we are um, are oftentimes um, worked out in the soul and spirit. So a person can, I believe that people, all people have souls, regardless of what they believe or even what I believe. I think it's just a, a natural unfolding of who we are as human beings. Something intangible, part yeah, of our makeup. Exactly. exactly. That, uh, what was the Will Smith film? 
when you, when we die, it's like that. Oh yes, it's, uh, it's like there's something in our body weight that changes. Yes, yes. The, yeah. Was it seven pounds, eight eight pounds? I can't or something. Like that. <laughs> some ounces, some number with a, a unit of weight. I can't remember. <laughs> Sorry, Will. I know you're listening, exactly. and you're going to be offended. I can't remember the name of your movie, but uh, so you obviously thought through this a ton, uh, and you just love talking about story mm-hmm. and even teaching about story mm-hmm. here in LA. Um, what was the story that was first told to you where you're like, I am hooked on this. I want to do that. Oh, geez. Was there a childhood experience you had that you remember that, that was I just... had with story? Well, you know, I, I guess I, I'll, I'll skip over Star Wars because, you know, I'm Generation <laughs> X. You know, it's been it's, mentioned more than once yeah, on the podcast. It was, that yeah. was, I think that was one of the first stories that really opened up to me the fact that um, a story can be more than something, more than something that I just experience in my mind and body. So this is something that actually can go a bit deeper and I can actually identify with a character and resonate with a character. But I think the, the story that really, um, really encouraged me and sort of um, inspired me to go on to write was actually the movie Rear Window, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock film. I haven't seen and it. And it's, it's, it's probably my favorite Hitchcock film. And it's just a story about a guy who broke his leg and he's just stuck in his apartment and he thinks that he witnesses a murder on the other side of the apartment complex, and he spends the whole film trying to solve the murder. Well, that's at least the external story that's being told. And after watching the film for probably the 10th time, um, I realized as I was watching this that, oh, this actually isn't really a story about solving a murder. What the story is really about is this relationship between Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly. And at the end of the day, this is actually a story about the, the nuanced differences between men and women and the roles they play in society. And I think that's when I, I really stepped back and I was like, oh my, my gosh, I've just been watching this film because I thought it was a fun murder mystery, but I am learning about the human experience of this whole process. So I got caught, you know, it, it, uh, I got the rug pulled out from underneath my feet. And that's, I think when I it really, I cognitively was very aware of the fact that story can do so much more than just send a character on a journey to accomplish a goal and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this deeper underlying story, this internal journey that's going on with main characters. Um, and that is that is the aspect of story that I love focusing on, the internal journey of the main characters. So yeah, Rear Window. Was Do you remember how old you were when you first saw it? Oh, I was probably probably eight or nine the first time that I saw it, but I was probably 15 or 16 when... I started to connect some of the dots. So yeah. yeah. So what did you do when you started connecting those dots? It kind of cues this epiphany, I guess, of I don't, there's something here that's like yeah. a magnet, and I keep getting sucked into it. I want to be a part of. Absolutely. I think it was at that point when I started to realize just how crucial. Um, and this this is going to sound so simplistic to people who've been <laughs> writing for a long time, but again, this is fifteen year old Jeremy, you know, making these statements. Uh, I realized how crucial it is that you develop your main characters, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that they actually have um, history and nuances, and they have aspects of their their psyche that are broken that need to be fixed, and that ultimately the story journey is kind of about fixing that thing that's broken inside of them, even though what they're doing in the story may have may on the surface have absolutely nothing to do with that thing that's broken inside of them. And so it's, uh, it just spurred me on to really think about, okay, uh, you know, I get the whole a story as a character trying to solve a problem while facing opposition. That's great. Very simple definition of story. Um, but there's something more going on here. 
And, and, I, and I believe in all great stories, you're, you're actually always telling two stories. You're telling an external story and an internal story, an inside story and an outside story. Sure. And it's how those two stories intertwine with each other and how they pay off at the end that really makes a story resonant. And almost always at the end of a film, when you walk away from a film feeling something, you don't feel something because the character accomplished their external goal. You feel something because that character changed on the inside. And sometimes it's not even talked about in the film. You just feel it. But a good writer is aware, very aware of that process as they're constructing their story. Um, so so that's that's what it's it started spurred me on to do. To 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 not think about characters as just um, this interesting thing. You know, I think before I almost viewed characters like props in stories. It's just like, well, just create oh, a character that's really cool and interesting. And um, I think a, a big disservice that sometimes we do in writing classes is we encourage students to write character sketches of their, of their main characters. And really writing a character sketch is, is, it's a great exercise to help develop your character and kind of understand the character. But all a character sketch is is usually just biographical information about a character. It's like, well, here's where they grew up and this is what their family life was like and this is their favorite flavor of ice cream and this is their favorite song and all that sort of thing. And, um, that's that really is not an interesting character. That might be an interesting character to look at, but that's not necessarily an interesting character to engage with. And so to really create a character that's ready to go on to an, on a story journey, you have to actually get deep inside the psychology and spirituality of that character and start constructing that from the inside out. So really specific questions you need to ask. You need to, a character actually needs to be at a very specific point in their moral development before they're ready to go on a story journey. So if you haven't gotten that character to that particular point, you're not ready to tell your story. And I think that's probably one of the biggest struggles that, that writers have is sometimes they, they develop this interesting character and now they're like, well, where in this character's life do I begin the story? Um, if you haven't answered some basic fundamental questions about who that character is on the inside, you'll have no idea when, where to start your story or how to end it or how to develop it and build it. Yeah, give us some more examples of some of those basic fundamental questions. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, usually at the beginning of a story, a character does need to be at the end of the rope. So they have, they've kind of tried everything to overcome a problem. Um, all good characters in their backstory, and, and when I refer to backstory, and this is different from character sketch. Character sketch is just that biographical information. A backstory is biographical information as well, but it answers a few specific questions. And so what backstory does is um, we have to, first of all, before a character can go on a journey, uh, there has to be something inside of them that's broken. And really, at the end of the day, that's why we send a character on a story journey, to fix something inside of them that's broken. Whether they fix it or not, that's, that's to be seen. Uh, but that's ultimately why we send a character on a, on a story journey. In real life, when we're broken, we go to therapy. Um, in story, when a character's broken, we send them on a story journey. <laughs> so the journey that a character goes on really should, say, should serve the same type of purpose that uh, you know, going to therapy would. And that's like getting at the heart of what's really going on. So one of the questions that you have to answer is, well, first of all, what very specifically is broken inside my main character? And one of the reasons why this is so important to define is, number one, it gives us our, our character a flaw. 
And um, unfortunately, again, in a lot of these writing classes, we tell students, hey, give your character a flaw. And usually the reason is uh, that we give them is it just makes them more personal and we don't like perfect characters and you know, it just helps us relate to them. Um, that's a really bad reason to give a character a flaw. The flaw of your main character is so important. It's so important that you clearly define what this thing is because ultimately the flaw of your main character, this thing that's deeply broken inside of them, is ultimately going to be the theme of your story. It's what the story is all about. So for example, if my character is fundamentally broken in the area of forgiveness, like that's where they are broken, they cannot forgive, well then by presenting that to the audience at the very beginning, this is how my character's broken, what I'm in essence saying is, and now I'm gonna send them on a journey to see if they learn how to forgive. Um, so identifying what's, what's wrong and not working correctly inside your main character um, determines the theme of your story. And uh, another question that you have to ask is what specific event occurred in this character's life that broke them in that way? We may never see that in the story, but it's just something we need to understand. Um, and then oftentimes at the beginning of stories too, characters are medicating in some sort of way. Um, they, and they're medicating so they don't have to deal with this problem sure. in their lives. And when we use the word medication, oftentimes we think of extremes like drugs and alcohol. But oftentimes in stories, uh, medications are very benign. So, and sometimes the medication can even look like a good thing. Uh, for example, um, a single mother who is uh, pouring her life into her kids to make sure they have a better life, that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. But if she's doing that at the detriment of the destruction and unhealth of her own soul, then there's an imbalance there. So even something good you know, can be something. Is there an example you can think of from classic cinema that we would be able to reference? Mm, of this kind of thing happening. That's a good question. We, you know, we see it all the time, and usually what it is, it's, and this is why it's sometimes hard to identify, usually it's the character's mundane. So it's literally um, the character, oftentimes stories start off with the character getting up and going to work and going through their same daily routine over and over and over again. Um, and this is oftentimes the thing that they're, they're doing just to get through life. Um, so really, if you look at the first five minutes you know, of any film, you're probably gonna find a character stuck in their mundane. Sometimes they wanna get out of it, but sometimes you know, they, they're enslaved to it and they stay in it even though they want out of it. I mean, even Luke Skywalker at the beginning of Star Wars, you know, he's stuck on Tatooine and he's doing all these chores and he talks about wanting to get off. He wants to go fight this, this big galactic battle, but what happens when he's given the opportunity to go with Obi-Wan Kenobi? He was like, eh, you know, I can't. I just really see, sort of need to stay here and do what my uncle tells me to do. And to be honest, it's just more comfortable to kind of stay where we're at. Uh, so nearly all good stories start with the characters in what I call their old normal. And the whole point of stories is to move a character from an old normal to a new normal. Um, so, so defining those things, you know, about your main character, the, the thing that's, that's broken inside of them, um, what specifically broke them, um, how they're medicating or avoiding dealing with the problem, um, all those things have to be in place before you're ready to send a character on a story journey. So and you're not going to discover that just in a, um, doing a character sketch. Jeremy obviously has a lot of expertise as a writer, director, and producer, and it's clear that he is also a teacher. As a film instructor at the Los Angeles Film Studies Center, I was curious what he has learned by watching his students learn to tell stories. As a teacher, mm -hmm. teaching film students here in LA, mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the things that you see them come into class with that you're just like, nope, we gotta work on that? Like, What are some of the common misconceptions, I guess, about 
how to tell a great story. Uh, do we have three hours for this <laughs> podcast? <laughs> I wish. Yeah, well, um, I think the, the overarching problem that we see is it has to do with goals and objectives, uh, making sure that you give your characters really clear goals. Um, one problem that I see come up now and then is when our students try to tell stories from real life. So when they try to pull stories from their own personal experiences, um, a lot of times they really struggle with doing that. And that that's not just a problem for the inexperienced writer. I think any writer who's trying to you know, take all this life information and whittle it down into a nice, concise little two-hour story um, has a lot of trouble doing that. And part of the reason why is because real life doesn't unfold beautifully and perfectly like narratives do. Um, the second acts of our lives are sometimes years and years and years, and the third act is a quick 15 minutes. You know, yeah. So it doesn't always work out that way. But I think one of the, the problems that my students run into is they really have trouble focusing on what I call the singularities of story. Um, great stories really um, play out well when we focus on the ones of storytelling or the very specifics of storytelling. Um, so good stories are oftentimes about one character facing one very specific opposition, uh, dealing with one specific aspect of their humanity that's broken, one overarching lesson that they learn you know, in the story, uh, one central antagonist. Uh, and there can be multiple characters. You can have multiple themes the longer your story is. But in all of these areas, there's usually going to be one central thing. Um, in my own life, when I encounter obstacles, um, oftentimes I learn multiple lessons. And I have multiple mentors in my life. And I face, you know, many oppositional forces along the way. And so when I sit down to tell that story, I feel like I have to incorporate all that into it. Uh, but the truth is, to tell my story effectively in the medium, kind of going back to what we are saying before about really learning the limitations of your medium, uh, especially films, like telling stories in film, uh, stories tend to work really well in singularities. So as I'm whittling down my life experiences, I have to start picking and choosing some things. I have to start editing some things out. So maybe my mom and my sister were both you know, people of encouragement in my life, but I, for the sake of my story, I really need to focus on one or the other. I may have focused, you know, I may have, uh, you know, faced three bullies in high school and, you know, I, maybe my coach didn't like me and I had all this, you know, oppositional force in my life. But when I'm telling the story of my life, I need to pick one and I need to focus on that. So I think that uh, one of the biggest problems that, that my students have is just learning to focus on those singularities, mm -hmm. you know, finding that streamline. I mean, we do it all the time when people tell us stories at work, you know, they, they start uh, telling us about their day and they like, oh, I got up and I brushed my teeth and I did this. And, and you know, we, we will allow them a few minutes to give some setup. <laughs> but after a while, we're like, okay, you know, get to the point. Yeah, sure. You know? And so I think that when we're telling our own stories, uh, it, being a self-editor is just very, very difficult. Yeah, so. no, I completely agree <laughs> with you. You know, one of my problems has been, you know, having a career as an illusionist traveling around the world for the last 20 years. <clears throat> now you're in a position where, and I would like to tell some of that story. You know, we just finished up this documentary, which is all I could think about just now while you were talking. Because I'm just like, I'm having that problem. There's all these villains, I guess, all this conflict in my story. And you want to find a way to include it all. Yeah. And it ends up making it a struggle because you just can't, uh, you, you can't ever finish the project because there's just too much depth and so many things you want to communicate. And it gets messy and confusing. And yeah. So, yeah, I think I'm. I'm living out the <laughs> I'm living out the problems that you're describing. It's really hard because you do you do have to sacrifice stuff that's really 
that was really life changing for you sometimes. It's like, ah, that's that's gonna it's not even gonna make it to the editing floor because <laughs> it's not even gonna make it to the page because we gotta cut it out. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's been the hardest part of you practicing what you preach? Because you've also done mm-hmm. some filmmaking on your own. Yeah. Have there been times where you've you've talked about something to your students and in class. Um and then you kind of caught yourself and going, oh, my last project didn't really do that. Oh, all, all the time. <laughs> In fact, I would say um, I, uh, the feature film, I, I wrote, direct, and produced a, a very low-budget feature film a few years ago. And uh, I would actually say that more than half of what I teach now stemmed from everything I did wrong <laughs> on that project, so learning from mistakes. Um, but um, absolutely, I, I find myself all the time struggling with the very same things that uh, that my students do, and I get so frustrated when I read my students' work. So I'm like, oh, this is I, I've I've literally made this as simple to understand as possible. Why can't you execute it? <laughs> and then I turn around and I don't understand why my story isn't working. And I give it to a friend to read, and they're like, well, you didn't do this, this, and this, which is fundamentally, you know, what I teach. And I think it is. I think that you know when we do tell stories, and, and this is a good thing. Um, th- I think in some ways this may even be an indication you're heading in the right direction. Um, I think I get lost sometimes, even in the things that I talk about, because my soul and my emotions and my feelings are so engaged in it. Um, but I think the reason why structure is so important is because it's it's without that structure, it's very easy for our personal stories to kind of become inside jokes. You know, it's like well. I get it, so obviously everybody else should get it too. It's like, no, if you haven't filtered your experience through some form of universal story language, you're not going to encode your message properly. Therefore, people aren't going to decode it properly. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think that probably the one thing that I struggle with the most is, ironically, because this is the biggest note we give students, is making sure my character in the external world of the story has a very clear, definable, definable objective that they're trying to accomplish. Um, and I do tend to, and I think a lot of writers do, I too, do tend to get so focused on that internal journey you know, that I kind of get obsessed with it. And it's like, okay, I, I need to make sure that I've got this really strong overarching plot <laughs> that's yeah. actually driving this narrative forward. So, yeah. yeah. How, how can other artists who also consider themselves storytellers um, but may not be filmmakers, mm-hmm. you know, a photographer who's posting images on Instagram, mm-hmm. but every caption is him trying to tell the story or her trying to tell the story of the person in that photograph, mm-hmm. um, or an artist who's painting, you know, is there some of what you refer to as transcendent storytelling that they can learn from and utilize? I would hope so. You know, that's that's kind of the objective. Um, when I talk about transcendent storytelling, um, in particular when I lecture about it, I, I use a, a pretty um, as as much of a definition of transcendence as you can give. I, I've got a, a definition that I formulated, but transcendent storytelling can be so much more than even the very limited scope that I talk about it in. And I mean, ultimately, transcendence is anything that. Um, connects us to what I would call the divine, you know, or connects us to that thing that's um, so much greater than ourselves. And um, one of the things that I do differentiate in my, my lectures is I differentiate between transcendent stories and transcendent experiences. Um, a transcendent story falls into some kind of specific, some, some definitions, loose, very loose definitions, but we can have a transcendent experience with literally anything. 
Um, you know, you can contemplate, you know, the ecosystem of a small little pond and a tree and the fish swimming in the pond, and you can suddenly have this enlightened experience and feel like you're connected with the divine. You can contemplate the complexities of a snowflake and suddenly feel connected in some ways. Um, so, you know, how that works in terms of art, I think in some ways that's everything that artists are, are trying to, to do, you know. Um, I love those photographs that don't need a caption, you know, the, the photograph that I can just look at and it's mm. just the story is there, you know. And um, I, I, I think when you start to talk about transcendence, anyone who tries to formulate transcendence doesn't get transcendence. They don't understand it. Um, the artists that I know who really do transcendent work, like the personal friends of mine that I would consider some of their work transcendence, they are people who have had some sort of transcendent experience themselves. And I don't know if you can really delve into the world of transcendence if you haven't had some sort of enlightened experience like that on your own. Um, I think part of transcendence, um, one photographer, a friend of mine comes to mind right now, um, every image that I see of his seems transcendent. Um, and then you look at his body of work and you just, you feel this just, this consistent voice throughout every single piece that he produces. And there is just this, um, again, indefinable, uh, intangible quality about his work that you know it's profoundly saying something. And that's, that's one thing too about transcendence is the transcendent person very rarely feels the need to run off and communicate their transcendent experience to the world. It's like everyone needs to experience this too. Transcendence is deeply personal. Um, and so the, the transcendence experiences that I have with stories and, and films are going to be very different. Even if you have a similar experience or a transcendent experience with the same film, they're going to be very different. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of advice and things to do, um, I think that it starts with soul work, you know, kind of like we we're talking about before, you know, and I always tell my students, go to the, the deepest, darkest places inside of you uh, and tell stories from that place. I don't think that writers in particularly, and I'm sure the same could be said for any artist, we don't do great work unless we are doing our work terrified. And if you are willing to sit down and write terrified, if you're scared of what you're writing, there's a good chance that you're tapping into some sort of transcendent nature uh, of storytelling. If you, if your photography, if you're sculpting, if you're painting, or, or whatever it is you're doing, if you are daring and bold enough in those things to ask questions that you're terrified to ask, you're saying something that the world needs to hear. In my, in my personal opinion. Uh, I think that's where we are going to progress as society. That's where we're going to transcend some of the binary language of our society and we can sort of move on to more, a more progressive existence. So that was a really long... I love it so much. <laughs> I love it so much. Uh, there's something interesting you said there. You said your your favorite photographs are the ones that don't need the caption yeah. because the story itself is in the photo. Mm -hmm. Would you even venture to say that's what separates a good photo from a great photo is one that tells a story? Absolutely. Okay. I so, <laughs> okay. So, based on that definition, um, I, I guess I could hear pushback from photographers, or maybe let's not even call it pushback. Mm -hmm. Young photographers mm -hmm. who are just starting out, who are going, "Okay, I know my pictures aren't great yet. Mm -hmm. How do I make my photos great?" He's he's saying that they need to tell a story. How, 
how, help them figure out why that photo may not be telling a story, or maybe it's just that you can't see the story in the photo. Yeah. Any any thoughts on that? Yeah. That those those are some big questions, and this is probably where we would need a seasoned photographer. Yeah, down, of course. You know, communicating, of course. you know, some of this with us. I think you know I can pull a little bit from like uh, language of cinema, you know, just sure. in terms of film, and some of the most powerful films that I would say are truly transcendent films. Um, you know, some of the works of like Terrence Malick and, you know, um, Kieslowski and Ingmar Bergman and those kinds of films, um, they so deeply and profoundly understand the language of their medium. And they, they understand what happens when they put uh, one image up against another image. And they've got this, this deep understanding of, of the nuanced relationship and meaning that was created by juxtaposing these two images next to each other. And um, I think that that can even happen in the context of a single frame. You know, there's multiple things happening in the frame, what's happening in the foreground, the background, so on and so forth, how these things are in relationship with each other. And I think it's the, the, the good photographer who literally understands there's not one single element in this picture that isn't important. Everything down to the blank space, to the white space, um, every shade of color, every hue, how it's composed in the shot, all of these things are in relationship with each other. And if I change just one single thing, I change the meaning of the photograph. And I don't think, at least, of course, not being a photographer, I, I, I wouldn't, you know, speak about this. But with you are authority. a cinematographer, yeah. and so I mean, if you take one frame out of a film, exactly. it's a picture. Exactly. Right? So I think that. Um, I know with, with writing, for example, the only way I was able to discover what happens if I just change, I can change one line of dialogue in a scene, and I can change the entire feel of the scene. And I think photography could be very much the same way. The only way to know that is just through experience, through just doing it over and over and over and over again. Uh, I think for the photographer, it means shooting thousands and thousands of terrible photographs. Um, and listening to to how your audience, how people are responding to it, um, and being open to that criticism, open to growing, open. And, and I, one of the things that I discovered when I was writing, when I when I did my first feature film, is I, I wrote a it was a fifty page treatment, and I sent it to a writer friend of mine. And I was so proud of it; <laughs> I thought it was just brilliant. <laughs> and uh, and he was a storyteller too, and a writer. And he sent it back with pages of notes. And he liked the story. He wasn't being critical of the story, but he had so many detailed questions. And he's also an actor, so he's looking at it from a character perspective. And he's like, well, I don't understand why the character would make this little tiny decision right here. That doesn't make sense. Uh, why is he responding in this way and that way? And it was in that moment that I realized, oh my goodness, I am such a lazy writer. Like, <laughs> I, I thought I was so smart. And I'm just, there's, so, there's such a depth and complexity to the nuances of telling stories about life that I'm just breezing over. I'm, I'm sort of relying on my use of, of clever words um, and I'm hoping maybe the audience won't really see that I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I think that photographers, beginning photographers can kind of do the same thing. Well, I've got the latest fancy camera, I've got great lenses and uh, you know what, this image just looks cool. So therefore it's a great photograph. Um, but I, I don't think you are going to progress in your art until you are willing to literally deconstruct every every pixel of that image and and ask yourself why why did I do that what's the motivation why is it there and then I think some of that starts to become intuitive you know I don't go through that you know agonizing process every single time I write now um, it's starting to become something that I I breathe you know as I write so I would assume that in other art forms there's some some similarities 
So yeah, you've written two books. Mm-hmm. One of which I have, Masters of the Cinematic Universe. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What is your hope when people finish reading that book that they know? Uh, I think really for that book in particular, for Master of the Cinematic Universe, which I, I co-wrote with a friend of mine, John Booker, so um, who I know is going to be on the podcast as well. Um, it's, I think the, the end objective really, to kind of go back to where we started, is just that people understand how powerful story really is. Because the, the crux of that book is, is we're looking at different forms of short-form media. Um, everything from YouTube videos to Snapchat to you know even um, video resumes. We even talk about video resumes in there. And in every one of these mediums, we talk about how they can be made more powerful and, and resonant and meaningful by implementing elements of story into these things. And in the first couple of chapters, we really get into the, the nuts and bolts of what makes a good story. And so I always tell people with that book, if you're gonna if you're gonna read anything, you know, read like the first three chapters, and then kind of pick and choose the chapters after that that you want to read that are more applicable to what you're you're trying to do. So at the end of the day, just I hope they see that story is something that does have the power to affect people, but there are aspects of story too that anybody can learn. So you don't have to be Flannery O'Connor to be a storyteller. Um, you may not be destined to be the greatest storyteller, but we all can become better storytellers no matter what level we're at. I love talking to and learning from Jeremy. If I'm honest, it's really hard to record podcast interviews with teachers and professors. Not because they're hard to interview, but because they are these fountains of knowledge. Uh, Because they've spent hours in classrooms teaching others. I always wish I have had more time to keep the conversation going. But in this case, uh, I wanted to finish our conversation with Jeremy in the same place that we started, by talking about the power of stories. I was curious, as a film professor, as a writer, as an expert in the world of telling stories, what advice would he give to us as the story community? Well, I, I actually, I think I've already said it, and I'll, I'll just reiterate, and, and that is just going back to that idea of writing terrified, you know, that place of just going to the place that you don't want to go to, that's probably what you need to write. Um, I say it to my students every semester, tell me stories about truths that you've, been, you've experienced, not truths that you've been taught. When we just regurgitate what we've been taught, people, audiences, they sniff that out a mile away. They, it's inauthentic and they know it. But when I tell a story about a truth that I earned, I know this is true because I went through the testing fires of life. I went on my own story journey. I faced my, I faced my own antagonist and I, I, I went through my own false defeat. I had to die to myself and I learned this truth. When I tell a story about that truth, um, it's real. It's honest, and audiences know that, and they sense it. Um, and I think when we first start writing, especially when we're younger, uh, we're still we're still operating in in those those levels of moral development where we still um, we're still standing on the things we've been taught, and we still really believe they're true, and we're going to tell stories about those things. Uh, but it's oftentimes not until you get a little later on in life that some of those things start to fall apart a little bit, and you have to start testing them and um, taking them through the, the, the fires of trials and tribulations. I had a screenwriting professor once tell me that um, I wouldn't write anything worth reading until I was 35 years old. And I was 22 at the time, and I was just, 
I was offended that he would say that. It's like, how dare you say that as a 22-year-old, I don't have anything worth saying. And that is not what he was saying. At 22, I did have things that were worth saying. Um, but it wasn't until I got into my mid-30s and in my early 40s that what he said started to become very profound. And it's, it's as you enter into the, the you know, those, those ages, those, those years of life, I think that's when you start, you start testing the waters and you start breaking apart and deconstructing everything that you've been taught your whole life and you need to start finding some truths out for yourself. And um, that's, that's where great stories come from. So write terrified, um, be open and willing to go on your own personal story journeys um, and tell stories from, from those places. And uh, you will tell stories that the audience and the world needs to hear. So. I love that. What are you terrified of? <laughs> what am I terrified? Where do I begin? <laughs> I'm terrified to talk about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'm terrified of being authentic. You know, I think that uh, there is that having grown up in a um, a very conservative religious environment, um, so much of my early my early life was built on how I was perceived, um, following the rules, doing what's right, doing what's wrong. And regardless of what I have come to believe about some of that now, that stuff is still embedded in my psyche. And I, every day I'm filtering what I'm doing through a lot of old haunting voices in my mind. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's uh, these bad theological worms that I'm constantly trying to pull <laughs> out of my head. Um, and so I think that anytime we step out, or speaking for myself, when I am feeling the need or the desire to step outside of this, this um, medication, this, this old normal that has, that has helped me make sense of the world. Whether it was right or wrong, it's how I make sense of the world. When I am in a place in life where I am feeling the need to step outside of that comfort zone and step into a new transcendent, new normal that's terrifying and scary, uh, it means shedding off a part of my old self. It means dying to something that's been a crutch my whole life. And, um, and I, I am, again, as I'm, as I'm getting older, I face those situations more and more all the time. Um, so ironically, stepping into a better life is oftentimes one of the most terrifying things to do. So. I love that. had a blast so far here in LA hanging out with people like Jeremy. They're teaching me a lot and I hope this conversation has been valuable for you as well. If you want to read more of Jeremy's thoughts on transcendent storytelling, read some of his writings on his website at jeremycasperstory.com. That's just J-E-R-E-M-Y-C-A-S-P-E-R-Story.com. You can also follow him on social media. He's just at jercasper, J-E-R Casper. As always, thank you so much for listening to the show. Next week, we'll be sitting down with yet another incredible story expert. And I absolutely cannot wait for you to listen in. Oh gosh, I'm so excited. It's going to be another really great show. Until then, I am Harris III. Thank you so much for listening to The Story Podcast.
This episode was produced by Harris III. It was mixed by Chad Michael Snavely and music was written by Aaron Farmer. The Story Podcast is a production of Astoria Collective. Thank you for listening.